This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian, tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things but at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. Shouldn't you be at work? Love. Oh, and Love, he's got a real chance now. Peter and Love. John Walk will take the penalty. Up goes Dion Dublin. Unknown goal from Ruddock. Ball by break here for Kiwabia. Panister and Bruce in the queue again. Bruce scores. Goal leg. Hit leg. Hit leg over the top. It's it now. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, and he has it. No. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin. Will he score? It is Series 9. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And here he is. I haven't got an intro for him, but he's here anyway. It's Michael Mod. Hello. Uh, welcome back. I knew I said I was going to be away, but I'll be away further down the line now. I think the way we should, we should play this series is just be excited about who the lineup's going to be for the final few exactly. episodes on a week to week basis. For instance, today we have an interview with the amazing Nick Hancock, which was very exciting. Obviously, a very uh, on point guest for us. And um, just so you know, Michael wasn't there for the interview. It isn't that Michael was absolutely so intimidated by Nick Hancock <laughs> that he couldn't get a word in. Uh, right, now, well, should we start with the 90 o'clock news, Chris? Let's go for it. From the headquarters of ITN, News at 10, with Chris Scull. A listener shares referee Graham Barber's timeline and Chris Sutton makes astonishing decision. <laughs> I know the Chris Sutton one already. Yeah, I, I can't believe it. I mean, yeah. it's just astonishing. Let's start with Graham Barber. I don't really know much about Graham Barber. Uh, I can't really picture Graham Barber. The name rings a bell. Let me just have a look at what he looks like. Do you remember what Graham Barber looks like, Michael? No, I can't. No, no mental image at all. But thank you to Andrew Watt, who sent us through this astonishing revelation. Oh, uh, yeah, I recognise him. Uh Andrew Watt has said, he recently re-listened to the Dermot Gallagher episode where we were talking about the day of a ref. Um, and then he's he's watching a replay of Match of the Day from 96-97, the main game, 
he's watching highlights of is Newcastle Arsenal. And Tony Gubber mentions in passing that referee Graham Barber got to the Newcastle Arsenal game at 10 a.m. for a 3 p.m. kickoff. Oh, oh, oh. Five hours beforehand. Oh, absolutely. What are you killer. doing? You don't want that, do you? What? There's nothing to do. So what's he doing with his time? Yeah, exactly. What are you doing? You don't. You only really need to be there an hour, maybe an hour and a half, two hours before at a push. When you run out, check the check the goal, do a little jog, you, you're good to go. Five hours. Well, the only thing would be if it was a really bad weather or pitch, and you wanted to get in ahead of the kind of yeah game on it. Do you know what I mean? Astonishing. Astonishing. But uh, this is, well, I've put this story second. It's clearly our main story, really. Chris Sutton, yeah. on the 7th of November, put his Christmas tree up. That is insane. The 7th of November. The 7th of November. What is he thinking? Is it a real, is it a real tree? It looks to be a fake tree. I, I'm pleased to announce. Yeah. But he also says, and Chris Sutton says, in, in, as by way of explanation... There is not his decision. He says, not my call this, Santa. And the Christmas tree already out. We are better than this, dot, dot, dot. So he's taken a photo of himself with Santa and his daughter in front of this fake tree. He's also then not put the photo up. He's then screen grabbed (laughs) the photo from his own camera roll, showing how low his battery is. That is mad. November the 7th. Yeah. And, and do you know what? He's, another peculiar thing about this is he's got like a, a four and a half foot Santa. And also, the picture is taken in almost a complete dark. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's such a bleak picture. No decorations on the tree. Not even a name. And the tree is kind of buckling under a beam at the top. Yeah, the, the tree, tree doesn't, doesn't have enough space. House. Do you think you'd like Chris Sutton as your dad? Like, you know, like, because he's quite funny, isn't he? And he's quite kind of grumpy but in a kind of comedy way do you think yeah. Chris Sutton would be quite a fun dad to have? Yeah I think he would I, I, I think there's definitely an element of him creating the on screen persona and everything he says even that sort of sternness there is a playful glint in his eye Yeah I like yeah. him I like And I think him. and I think this is a, it's a bit of fun isn't it he knows it's, it's crazy early but to be fair he's getting a bit of traction with it Exactly enjoy yeah. yourself Chris enjoy yourself Yeah um, Now can we uh, begin the uh, postbags? We've got so much to get through. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Postbag. You've got mail. Further to... Uh, this is from Ben Thurston. Hello. Further to our conversations about the pools panels, I wonder if you turned your attention to spot the ball. My understanding of this was that, as it is illegal to bet on the event that has already taken place... What you're actually trying to do is not identify the position of the ball, but to replicate the guess of a panel of experts. The following extract is from a Guardian article from January 15th. At the time, no one had won the jackpot in over 10 years. Uh, This is the extract. Actually, what players are trying to do each week is not identify the factually correct whereabouts of the ball, but the whereabouts of a fictional ball determined by a mini-conference between two former players. So Liverpool's Ian Callaghan and David Sadler of Manchester United. How do they do that? Unfortunately, Callaghan answers the phone only to say that he doesn't want to talk and he doesn't have five minutes. Presumably, they don't actually meet up to decide. So not only is there a pools panel and a Dubis goals panel, but there is a spot the ball panel as well. This is blowing my mind. Yeah, I knew that. You know, that's, yeah, so they're just you're not guessing where the ball actually is. You're guessing where someone thought yeah. the ball would be. 
So according to this article, uh, Ian Penrose, chief executive of Sports Texas, they do meet up every Saturday. They study a photo with the ball taken away. They sit and deliberate and decide where the ball, where the centre of the ball should be, and that's then marked with a pin. Deliberations take up to an hour. <laughs> <laughs> The process is unchanged in more than two decades. There you go. Um, Matt Hamilton writes, Hi guys, been listening to your many discussions of how Peter Shilton seemed to wait till the ball had gone in before choosing which way to go. But I think I've stumbled across a goalkeeper with an even worse technique. I was recently watching the 1982 World Cup semi-final that became the first World Cup match to go to penalties. French goalkeeper Jean-Luc Atori faced six penalties. He only dived for one, and that was after the ball hit him. His technique seemed to consist of him staggering around the penalty area like a drunk, hoping he would somehow walk into the ball. Imagine only diving once. So he's not dived. He stayed, (laughs) stood. Is is he moving, though? Because there's a difference between staying static and the hope that one of them will be sort of hit down the middle or close enough to you, Uh, or or doing that kind of Bruce Grobbler, kind of like moving along the line in the hope that you might put them off. Well, so what's the other option is that he's running to the side rather than diving. That wouldn't seem like the right thing to do, would it? No, but do you know what I mean? Like, if he's constantly sort of taking a few steps either way, at some point the penalty data has to take that penalty and they've got the choice of going where they've chosen to go before his movement or waiting for him a bit like an arcade game and going, OK, he's moved yeah. far enough to the left now, I'm going to go to the right. Which feels do, you, like- do you think... Do you think if you were allowed... I don't. I can't never remember how the rules m- work. If you're allowed to move left and right on the line, do you think constantly moving side to side would be an advantage or a mistake? Like if a goalie was running from one post to the other, I suppose you were just trying to... You're trying to time it, like, in a, like you say in a computer game, trying to shoot at the right point. I'd be interested to see it. I feel like there might be a differential in there because it is new and it is different. And I think certain players... They're already quite nervous, the psychology of it. They might overcompensate and shoot a bit further to the right, for instance, and they might normally and, and shank it or put it put it wide. Are you doing? Are you like? Are you constantly facing forward and kind of sidestepping, or are you turning ninety degrees and <laughs> pegging it between across. the posts? I, I think you need to be sidestepping. I think you need to be able to. But sort you're, of you're not going to get much of a pace up there, are you? Like the pace is going to be slow enough that it's like when you're on one side, you've got no chance of getting to the other. But if yeah. you just turn ninety degrees and are pegging it as hard as you can between the posts suddenly it's a game changer i think the axis i think the turning axis slows you down as well and also you're not committed to go to crab and sidestep all the way to each post (laughs) you could go a step and fake them and come back the other way (laughs) here's an idea right so you start and your position is a sprinter's kind of you know like at the start of the hundred meters using one of the posts for your heel right to push off so the whole goal is at your mercy, at the mercy, and you're in the corner, braced like a sprinter. And as the person runs up, you're gonna you're gonna pounce off and you're gonna dive across <laughs> the goal completely. And he's got to judge where to where would you where would you position that kick? I think that'd be a difficult thing to play against. I, I think you're right. I think that would be very unsafe. You wouldn't be, want to be the first kicker up against that technique, would you? Like by the fifth one, you'd be like, okay, I've got a measure of this. I think the instinct yeah. is to go as far away as possible from the goalkeeper. Yeah. But also, if he's started with any kind of momentum going forward, there's absolutely no way he can stop, turn around and respond if you've gone 
behind him but also yeah. i get i guess it'd have to be a sense that once a kicker starts his run up he can't do one of those sort of like weird Jorginho staggered ones there's a sort of like once <laughs> once once the flag you know like a drag race once someone drops yeah, the flag yeah, 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 like yeah. you both you're both going until the ball has been kicked but you know there is kind of a precedent isn't there because like Bruce Grobola did the spaghetti legs in the European Cup final like that's that at the time was seen as really innovative and and really consequential in terms of uh, was it Roma they played like in terms of all those, pe- yeah, those penalties was, that were yeah. missed so, but mate, there's something in this. There is something in this. I think if you could innovate on, on the big stage, imagine the Euro final against Italy. Jordan Pickford is pegging it between the posts. You're going to be completely discombobulated as the penalty taker, aren't you? <laughs> so imagine, this is, we've gone back in time, we're at the Euros, it's the finals. It's a penalty shootout. We're there in the fan park watching this. <laughs> And Jordan Pickford starts doing that. Like, what's going through your mind? I as would a fan? honestly think he'd had such a good tournament. I was like, saved this two, is though, brilliant. It's normal technique. Saved. <laughs> the problem with it is, if you do that as a goalkeeper, the goalkeeper can't be the villain, except at the 1990 World Cup semi final. But the goalkeeper can't be the villain. So, if the goalkeeper was to do that, I feel like if it failed, they'd get a lot of flack. But imagine yeah. if he saves the first one. <laughs> imagine um, what, the just w- the watching the heads go of the Italians in the semicircle. Because also, you could you could do it from different posts. You wouldn't necessarily need to go left to right every time. And also, if you if you're doing it for the first two, and on the third one you're static, you'll be like, "What is this? What's going on now?" What about if you held onto the crossbar and kind of <laughs> swung yourself left and right, <laughs> like mon- using the crossbar like monkey bars? <laughs> <laughs> Did you need to be on the line physically, or could Jordan Pickford, if if he wanted, be stood on top of the crossbar, <laughs> <laughs> which is he's on the line directly. He's on the line. Yeah, he's on the line, and then his aim is to jump down the front. So the momentum of his fall. <laughs> I'm going to say that's probably the least effective of all the suggestions. <laughs> but what if he's like, you know, like how runners start for that 100 metres? They get, they get down on like, they kneel down on the, in the blocks. He's do, he, but he's doing that, but he's in the very back corner of the net. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, he's going to come charging out. But it's on what direction? Like, do you go for the far post? That appears like he's getting ready to sprint there. So like... yeah. Yeah, which direction he's charging at. Yeah. Hey, it could work. It could work. Um, okay, well, I should just end this correspondence with a very simple thing. Do you want to see... Do you remember when England toured Australia in 1991? I don't know if you remember this. Uh, they did some friendlies in 1991. Do you want to see a picture, uh, a publicity picture from it? Do you like that? Oh, wow. What can you see there? So that is um, Stuart Pearce sporting an incredible haircut. I had that haircut once as a kid, but it's because my mum couldn't afford it to take us to the hairdresser so she just put a bowl on my head and just cut around yeah. the edges of the bowl well, Stuart Pierce has the haircut of you're right of a of a school child but no one's willing to say that to him yeah uh, and he is stood next to uh, Des Walker in what I assume are sort of official England tracks they look very official do they they, they, they don't they look like the sort of they um, look like Littlewoods catalogue yeah, yeah shell yeah. suit tracksies and uh, Stuart Pierce. the key detail is Stuart Pierce is uh, cradling a, a kangaroo like a baby it's a beautiful picture, isn't it? 
I didn't even spot the kangaroo. It blended into the tracksuit top. What, what did you think the picture was? Just I him didn't know, and the, I didn't... you didn't spot the kangaroo. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you talked about his hair. The, the kangaroo blends seamlessly into the tracksuit top. I'm not sure it does. No. Don't, I'd don't say, be... if someone said, what's that picture of? I would definitely see the kangaroo. Well, do you know where... Have you ever seen that... Um, sometimes they paint warships with this triangular like pattern that's not dissimilar to this one on this tracksuit because apparently it's it's really difficult to pick up. Yeah, yeah. it's a bit like and the I Manchester never thought it would work. third kit. Yeah. Yeah. And I never thought, well, that doesn't work. Here is the evidence. I didn't see a kangaroo amongst this pattern. Oh, well, there we go. There we go. We'll get that on our Instagram. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, this is how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin. And sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Now, a legend of 90s football, if you do like the 90s, uh... Then, uh, Chris Skull, you have a book out about 90s football called what? Can We Not Knock It? It's all in there. Lots of different games from the 90s that were looked at. Czech Republic once played Bamba Bridge in a Euro 96 warm-up. Read all about it and get a copy at canwenotknockit.com. And if you like 90s culture, and frankly, why wouldn't you? Surely the dream Christmas present is that compacted into one present or wrapped separately. Uh, with uh, my book, uh, Watching Neighbours Twice a Day, which is a journey through the 90s told through the TV shows we watched. Go and buy both of them. Here is a man who bestrode 90s television. Room 101, they think it's all over. Football nightmares. The Outsiders, a documentary about following Iran at France 98. And of course, throughout it, was a huge fan of Stoke City with a great story about being slammed by Stanley Matthews. This was a lovely chat with the brilliant Nick Hancock. Today's guest is very much one of our dream guests. In the 90s, he combined hosting the iconic comedy panel show They Think It's All Over with dominating the VHS charts with his Football Nightmare series. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, TV titan and Stoke City fan, Nick Hancock. How Great. are you, Nick? Very good, thank you very much. Just just the ticket, yeah. Um, Stoke not doing too badly, so that always helps. Um, yeah, yeah, pretty positive. Are you emotionally involved? How emotionally involved do you get in Stoke City? Yeah, l- less than I used to. I mean, yeah. uh, <laughs> I- I'll be honest, since I've had children, I'm, I, uh, not, I, not that I love my children more than I love Stoke, that's clearly not the case. <laughs> it's, it's confused things a little bit. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I still, I get it, I, get, I, do get, I do get involved, but n- not in the same way that, you know, when you go to every single game and you live in, breathe it and you know uh, all, all you do the moment one game finishes pardon me is, is plan the next one and so yeah. so yeah, not, not not that bad but you know it still upsets me when they do badly which is <laughs> all the time in the so in the 90s was the kind of glut of the suddenly of the football fan of the comedian or celebrity that be associated clearly with a club and you were stoke and yeah. it felt like you were one of the ones that was, that was the most kind of passionate about your club. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there are different sorts of ways that that worked, aren't there? Because first and foremost, you know, before, uh, before 1990 and all, all that stuff, um, uh, no, virtually nobody was willing to be associated with it. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I was, I was uh, not a lone voice, but uh, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, the, yeah, there are a lot of dilettantes out there. And <laughs> I, I always say, you know, if you meet somebody and they say they support club, you know within two or three minutes if they support the club to the same level that you support yeah. the club. Yeah. yeah it's, it, you can tell uh, really yeah. easily. Yeah. <laughs> Being Stoke's number one fan in the 90s, I'd say, what, uh, what benefit did you see of that? Oh, God, none. <laughs> no, I mean, absolutely not. Um, uh, just because I, I used to just go with my mates the same the same way I I, I always had, um, and of course in the nineties, you know, the, the, the whole sort of executive box type thing, it only just kind of started, and and it would have being a Stoke fan, it would have seemed incredibly poncy uh, to have done it. Um, so not really. In fact, the only, the only, the only time I got to, to, to touch the hem of the coats of the, of the uh, influential people was when we won the Autoglass in 1992. And they, um, uh, I'd just like to say we won it again in 1999. You know what I mean? It was our decade. Um, so... Yeah, they asked me. They asked me to do a speech at the dinner afterwards. Oh wow, now, Josh! I don't know whether you've ever ever done a speech for professional sports. No, before. I wouldn't want to. Don't do it. Don't <laughs> do it. I, I, you know, the comedian Bob Mills was asked to do cabaret for the England squad. Oh, um, was he? Yeah, before a game, and and died so badly he pretended to faint. He <laughs> 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 did, and he was sort of carried out. <laughs> so, of course, similarly, I can tell that story because this is what happened to me. So I'm, st I'm staying, starting with the same sort of jokes I'd do if it was like my local football club, you know, taking the mickey out of them saying, you know, that they're yeah. slow or they're this or they're that or they're the other. And, of course, all professional footballers think that it's just bad luck that they're not, you know, the Ballon d'Or winner. Yeah. That there's no acceptance that possibly... There's there's a grey area between you know you know it's a, a sort of a, a, an order anyway so clearly all these jokes right now very very badly and um, and then I just had a little little hand on my shoulder little hand on my shoulder the bloke sitting next to me and he said I think you better sit down son and yeah oh, oh, oh. but wait and the bloke sitting next to me was Sir Stanley Matthews oh wow oh <laughs> so, no uh, you know very polite <laughs> booing off. But by her peer in the realm. <laughs> oh, wow. So that and did that hard. ruin your day? You'd won the autograph. Did it ruin my day? <laughs> did it ruin... I think about it constantly. <laughs> I, I ended up... First of, all, first of all, what happened is I did sit down and it sort of ended. Yeah. And, and then players came one by one to threaten me for the things oh, I'd wow. said to them. What? Including, including the quite frightening Mick Kennedy, who was uh, a member of that sort of... Um, incredible uh, Portsmouth side with, with Noel Blake and all those sort of oh, people. Yeah. And he was fending all hard, you know, and lots and lots and oh. lots of threats and, 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 and anger. And I, you know, I ended up writing a letter to the club, to the <gasps> players and saying, I, just, I can't, uh, you know, I, oh, I don't know do, you know. Oh. Yeah. So can you not think about, maybe the, the ruin the day was the wrong phrase, maybe I should put it this way. Can you not think about the 1992 Autoglass win with anything other than regret. No, it's like it's like going to see the total eclipse of the sun and looking straight at it. All I can remember is that blinding sense of failure and embarrassment and, and regret. And, no, that's all I see. That's all oh, I see. Oh, mate. Yeah. 
you know, I, I smoked for quite a long time because they said that, you know, each cigarette takes a minute off your life. And I was hoping that I could choose the minutes that I could take <laughs> off my life and I could go back to 1992 and take those minutes out of my life. So, yeah, that was, that was the only privilege I had, the privilege to ruin my sense oh, of self-esteem. Yeah. <laughs> you, you kind of um, alluded to the fact that in the 80s that the being a football fan was very frowned upon in the 90s, it suddenly became the ultimate accessory kind of thing. And I suppose, do you know, we, we hadn't written this down, but this just popped into my head. Defining thing that did that, maybe, is Italia 90. And you, of course, were in one of the defining texts of Italia 90, which was An Evening with Gary Lineker. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in, in Evening with Gary Lineker was, was a play about watching the semi-final of the World Cup in a mm. hotel in Mallorca. Um, and Caroline Quentin was in it, and I was in it, Chris England was in it, and it was written by Arthur Smith and, and, and Chris England. And it wasn't a great leap to write this because uh, I watched the semi-final of the 1990 World Cup in a hotel in Mallorca with Caroline Quentin, <laughs> Arthur Smith, Chris England, <laughs> and strangely enough, Bob Mills. So oh, you wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and indeed, Graham Souness, who was not in the same room, but was at the same hotel. Yeah. Oh, wow. This is like a seminal uh, Sex Pistols gig, isn't it? Kind <laughs> <laughs> of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 but, the, but the, of course, what then happened was we did the play in the West End, and it was great. It was a lovely thing to do because it was just your mates. And you, as the play gets written, you do it in a tiny hall somewhere, and it ends up in the West End. And it's written by your friends, and I get to play a Stoke fan. So it was, it was absolutely wonderful. And then before they went to um, Sweden, because of course it was the one where Lineker got taken off. Yeah, before they went there, the whole squad um, came to watch it. So in the West End, so oh, that, wow. that that was quite nice. But Stuart Pearce wasn't there. And <laughs> Chris, who wrote it, told me a great story about when it went on tour and they had a new cast. They did it in. Um, they did it in Nottingham. Stuart Pearce came along to watch it. And at the end, there's a dream sequence where the penalties are being taken. And of course, they're going, and who's this? Who's it? It's Pierce. It's Pierce stepping up to the ball. And of course, everybody in the theatre just turns around and looks <laughs> at Stuart Pierce. And, and, and in the play, Pierce scores. And he go, we go, and it's there, Pierce has scored. And Stuart Pierce stood up and went, yes, yes, <laughs> in the theatre. Which is very pleasing. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> we normally start by saying, have you met a 90s football? But obviously with you, um, well, you've already, well, Stanley Matthews is not a 90s football, football yeah. in his 90s maybe, but um, <laughs> was there a kind of crossover between the comedy and the football world at that time? No, not not really, no. I mean, of course, it was easier to meet players then anyway because, mm. you know, they might do something other than sit at home playing, you know, Call of Duty. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a half a chance you might see them somewhere. Um, the ones that I met mostly were once they think it's all over had started because yeah. they, they would come on. It's very difficult it's very difficult to persuade professional sportsmen, any professional sportsman, but especially footballers, to come on a show like that because they, they live in a dressing room mentality, which means they're used to having a mickey taken out of them, but they also don't ever want to put their head above the parapet because, yeah, yeah. because yeah. then you're the, you know, you're the one that gets, oh, you did that on that program, you skip so. But we did, we did, we had some, we had some great people, and and um, you know, and there were there were some, there were very some very funny people around. So yeah, I mean, that was really lucky. It was just, uh, you know, as a, as a sports fan, 
what's not to like you know you, yeah. know, you can meet all of your heroes and then be really rude to them for half an hour. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, i was thinking about that because your stick was to be it was quite acerbic a lot of mickey taking but as you say you know you're relying on them getting the joke did it did it always come off or did anyone come up to you afterwards uh, what do you mean? As in, uh, like Mick Kennedy? Um, uh, <laughs> Will Carling offered me out once. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, it was more of a you don't want to be saying that again, or you might find that something right, bad yeah. will happen to you. Type thing, <laughs> oh, which, wow. is, which is very <laughs> funny. Uh, but you know, but you know, yeah. But mostly they do get the the, the, the joke. They live in this incredible, you know, uh, predominantly male world where. They get very, very bored, and they just take the Mickey out of each other, you know, and mm. you know, you know, dead pigs in each other's lockers and stuff like that. So, if we go beyond the practical joke, yeah, you no, know, they're they're kind of fine with it. And that was a great thing about having Lineker and Gow was, you know, if you're taking the piss out of probably the most famous footballer in the country at the time and probably the finest cricketer in the country at the time, then they are not really in position to to complain if you're taking the mickey out of them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, if somebody yeah. at the very top yeah. could say, yeah, this is fine, that, it, it kind of helps. Because I, I remember at the time, like, you you were really in awe, not so much, like, on screen, but I remember in interviews and stuff, you, you David Gow was, like, your favourite Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. you're yeah. a huge cricket fan as well, aren't you? Yeah, I am, yeah, yeah. And so how quickly does that, does David Gower stop being the person that I adored who was on the cricket pitch and become a kind of work colleague almost. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, or is he always David well, I th- Gower? I, th- I think almost immediately, to tell you the honest truth. Yeah. Because, because the good thing about that, and I'll get into this too, which is not something I've really thought about, but, but in, in a sense, they're coming into your world. Yeah. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. you're making them feel comfortable about what's going on. Uh, not just the world of comedy, but the world of television to a large extent, the world, world of a panel show. So it's not like me going and having a net with him, you know what I mean? <laughs> or, or playing five aside with Gary. It's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> would watch it though. I would watch that. <laughs> and I would do it. <laughs> Let, let's talk about Stoke. So. Yeah. Um, Because I I think actually that is one of the things is because you were so obviously a bona fide, proper sports fan. I think that buys you a lot more as well. What were your earliest memories? You were born in 1962. So your earliest memories of sporting Stoke must be early 70s, would they be? Uh, Yeah, very late 60s, early 70s. 69, 70 was the first season I went to a game. And I was thinking about this the other day, actually. I hadn't really probably seen that much football. There wasn't very much football on television. Mm. You know, it wasn't yeah. like you could you you could have that sort of um, be blooded in your own home. You could warm up for going to a game by watching lots of football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It like that. Generally, your first experience was just rocking up. Um, wow. And, you know, I just remember my dad, I had my mate Phil around, and my dad said, what do you boys want to do today? Um, um, Stoker at home, or we could go conquer collecting at Shavington Gardens. <laughs> I seem to remember. <laughs> the two, two options. And... Uh, and it's cost me a lot of money, but I chose to go to Stoke. And, uh, <laughs> I, 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 you know, I've never collected a conquer since. But you could, there's another, there's a parallel world where you're one of the foremost conquer collectors in. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, doing a conquer podcast right now. Yeah. So the late six is pretty good for Stoke. Did, we, did you see Gordon Banks plays? He was signing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. At that time. Yeah, yeah. Now Gordon, Gordon signed in uh, 66, 67. And um, so, yeah, I saw a lot of Gordon Banks. Um, and obviously, uh, and in fact, I went to his last ever game, which 
clearly I didn't know it was going to be his last ever game because uh, he had a car crash uh, the next day. Oh, God, and it was yeah. away at Liverpool, which was not something I would normally probably have done at that age because I'd only been about 10, 11, 12 maybe. Um, and my dad said, come on, we'll go, we'll go to Anfield to, to watch Stoke. And uh, yeah, and tragically, next day he had his, had his accident. So yeah, I got to see Gordon Banks, you know, and Jimmy Greenoff and, um, and Dennis Smith and Alan Hudson. And, and they, they, those were all the players that were, that were, were um, around at that time. What's like your early days supporting Stoke? Was it very much like everyone would talk about Stanley Matthews? He played on until he was 50, but I think you would have just missed the tail end of his leg. Yeah, he played, well, he played until he was, he was 51. Um, in 1965, and and of course he may well have played on another five years, but substitutes substitutes hadn't been brought in at that stage. Oh, right. So he was picked. He had to play 90 minutes, you know. <laughs> so um, so you know you can imagine you say, well, we'll give Stan another couple of years. He can come on. He can come on for 20 minutes at the end, you know. Yeah. Because because actually the interesting thing about well, I think is interesting thing about that was when Stan. Retired, we immediately brought Gordon Banks. And the reason was we'd made so much money out of playing friendlies because Stan played for us. You know, we were forever being asked to go to Real Madrid and Barcelona. And, and so, and then we got Gordon Banks. And, and again, we were we were welcome in houses we shouldn't really oh. have been welcome in. So it's like when the kind of, you know, you see those news stories now about a club who've signed a Chinese player in the hope yeah. that it'll kind of break the Far East for them. Yes. Well, yeah, but I suppose kind of, you know, in Stan was from Stoke, so there was more of a, a logic to it. I think this this was discovered rather than being the plan. Yes, but, yeah. yeah. But, but it, it worked, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What was the yeah. match-going atmosphere? Like, what was the Victoria ground like when you first... Oh, right, home? Victoria ground, we had a great big um, open end, um, which, which you had home fans and away fans in. Um, you know, until about 10 minutes after kickoff. Um, and then there's a big booth in there, um, uh, the, the booth and stand, which was the new. Shouldn't you be at work? And Love. Oh, and Love, he's got a real chance now. Peter and Love. John Walk will take the penalty. Up goes Dion Dublin. Unknown goal from Ruddock. Four might break here for Kiwabia. Panister and Bruce in the queue again. Bruce scores! Goal leg! Hit leg! Hit leg over the top! It's dead out! Now! Now, you know him better than anybody probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Oh, he has No! Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? It is Series 9. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And here he is. I haven't got an intro for him, but he's here anyway. It's Michael Mod. Hello. Uh, welcome back. I knew I said I was going to be away, but I'll be away further down the line now. I think the way should, we should play this series is just be excited about who the lineup's going to be for the final few exactly. episodes on a week-to-week basis. For instance, today we have an interview with the amazing... Nick Hancock, which was very exciting, obviously a very uh, on-point guest for us. And um, just so you know, Michael wasn't there for the interview. It isn't that Michael was absolutely so intimidated by Nick Hancock <laughs> that he couldn't get a word in. Uh, right, now, well, should we start with the 90 o'clock news, Chris? Let's go for it. Hey! 
headquarters of ITN News at 10 with Chris Scull. A listener shares referee Graham Barber's timeline and Chris Sutton makes astonishing decision. <laughs> I know the Chris Sutton one already. Yeah, I, I can't believe it. I mean, yeah. this is astonishing. Let's start with Graham Barber. I don't really know much about Graham Barber. Uh, I can't really picture Graham Barber. The name rings a bell. Let me just have a look at what he looks like. Do you remember what Graham Barber looks like, Michael? No, I can't. No, no mental image at all. But thank you to Andrew Watt, who sent us through this astonishing revelation. Oh, uh, yeah, I recognise him. Uh Andrew Watt has said he recently re-listened to the Dermot Gallagher episode where we were talking about the day of a ref. Um, and then he's, he's watching a replay of Match of the Day from 96-97. The main game he's watching highlights of is Newcastle-Arsenal. And Tony Gubber mentions in passing that referee Graham Barber got to the Newcastle-Arsenal game at 10am for a 3pm kickoff. Oh, oh, oh. Five hours beforehand. Oh, oh absolutely. What are you Ella. doing? You don't want that, do you? What? There's, there's nothing to do. So what's he doing with his time? Yeah, exactly. What are you doing? You don't. You only really need to be there an hour, maybe an hour and a half, two hours before at a push. When you run out, check the check the goal, do a little jog, you, you're good to go. Five hours. Well, the only thing would be if it was a really bad weather or pitch, and you wanted to get in ahead of the kind of yeah game on it do you know what i mean astonishing astonishing but uh this is well, i've put this story second it's clearly our main story really chris sutton yeah on the 7th of november put his christmas tree up that is insane the 7th of november the 7th of november what is he thinking? is it a real is it a real tree it looks to be a fake tree i i'm pleased to announce yeah but he also says chris sutton says in, in, as by way of explanation it was not his decision. He says, not my call this, Santa. And the Christmas tree already out. We are better than this, dot, dot, dot. So he's taken a photo of himself with Santa and his daughter in front of this fake tree. He's also then not put the photo up. He's then screen grabbed <laughs> the photo from his own camera roll, showing how low his battery is. That is mad. November the 7th. Yeah. And, and do you know what he's got? Another peculiar thing about this is he's got like a, a four and a half foot Santa. And also, the picture's taken in almost a complete dark. <laughs> it's, it's such a bleak picture. No decorations on the tree. Not even a name. And the tree is kind of buckling under a beam at the top. Yeah, the, the tree, tree doesn't, doesn't have enough space. House. Do you think you'd like Chris Sutton as your dad? Like, you know, like, because he's quite funny, isn't he? And he's quite kind of grumpy but in a kind of comedy way do you think yeah. Chris Sutton would be quite a fun dad to have yeah I think he would I, I, I think there's definitely an element of him creating the on-screen persona and everything he says even that sort of sternness there is a playful glint in his eye yeah I like yeah. him I like and I think and I think this is a, it's a bit of fun isn't it he knows it's it's crazy early but to be fair he's getting a bit of traction with it exactly enjoy yeah. yourself Chris enjoy yourself yeah um now can we uh, begin the uh, postbacks? We've got so much to get through. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the electronic postbag. You've got mail. Further to uh, this is from Ben Thurston. Hello. Further to our conversations about the pools panels, I wonder if you turned your attention to spot the ball. My understanding of this was that, as it is illegal to bet on the event that has already taken place. What you're actually trying to do is not identify the position of the ball, 
but to replicate the guess of a panel of experts. The following extract is from a Guardian article from January 15th. At the time, no one had won the jackpot in over 10 years. Uh, This is the extract. Actually, what players are trying to do each week is not identify the factually correct whereabouts of the ball, but the whereabouts of a fictional ball determined by a mini-conference between two former players. So Liverpool's Ian Callaghan and David Sadler of Manchester United. How do they do that? Unfortunately, Callaghan answers the phone only to say that he doesn't want to talk and he doesn't have five minutes. Presumably, they don't actually meet up to decide. So, not only is there a pools panel and a Dubis goals panel, but there is a spot the ball panel as well. This is blowing my mind. Yeah, I knew that. You know, that's, yeah, so they're just... You're not guessing where the ball actually is. You're guessing where someone thought yeah. the ball would be. So, according to this article, uh, Ian Penrose, chief executive of Sports Texas, they do meet up every Saturday. They study a photo with the ball taken away. They sit and deliberate and decide where the ball where the centre of the ball should be, and that's then marked with a pin. Deliberations take up to an hour. (laughs) The process is unchanged in more than two decades. There you go. Um, Matt Hamilton writes, Hi, guys. Been listening to your many discussions of how Peter Shilton seemed to wait till the ball had gone in before choosing which way to go. But I think I've stumbled across a goalkeeper with an even worse technique. I was recently watching the 1982 World Cup semi-final that became the first World Cup match to go to penalties. French goalkeeper Jean-Luc Atori faced six penalties. He only dived for one, and that was after the ball hit him. His technique seemed to consist of him staggering around the penalty area like a drunk, hoping he would somehow walk into the ball. Imagine only diving once. So he's not dived. He stayed... (laughs) But is, Stood. is he moving, though? Because there's a difference between staying static and the hope that one of them will be sort of hit down the middle or close enough to you, uh, or, or doing that kind of Bruce Grobbler, kind of like moving along the line in the hope that you might put them off. Well, So what's the other option is that he's running to the side rather than diving. That wouldn't seem like the right thing to do, would it? No, but do you know what I mean? Like, if he's constantly sort of taking a few steps either way, at some point the penalty data has to take that penalty... And they've got the choice of going where they've chosen to go before his movement or waiting for him a bit like an arcade game and going, OK, he's moved yeah. far enough to the left now. I'm going to go to the right, which feels do you, like... Do you, think, do you think if you were allowed... I, don't, I can't never remember how the rules work. If you're allowed to move left and right on the line, do you think constantly moving side to side would be an advantage or a mistake? Like if a goalie was running from one post to the other. I suppose you're just trying to you're trying to time it like in a like you say in a computer game trying to shoot at the right point. I'd be interested to see it. I feel like there might be a differential in there because it is new and it is different and I think certain players they're already quite nervous the psychology of it. They might overcompensate and shoot a bit further to the right for instance and they might normally and, and shank it or put it put it wide. Are you doing are you like are you constantly facing forward and kind of sidestepping? Or are you turning 90 degrees and <laughs> pegging it between across. the posts? I, I think you need to be sidestepping. I think you need to be able to but sort you're of You're not going to get much of a pace up there, are you? Like, the pace is going to be slow enough that it's like, when you're on one side, you've got no chance of getting to the other. But if yeah. you just turn 90 degrees and are pegging it as hard as you can between the posts, suddenly it's a I game don't change. Know. I think, the, well, axis, I think the turning axis slows you down as well. And also, you're not committed to go to crab and sidestep all the way to each post. You could go a step and fake them and come back the other way. <laughs> Here's an idea, right? So you start and your position is a sprinter's kind of 
you know, the, like at the start of the 100 metres, using one of the posts for your heel, right, to push off. So the whole goal is at your mercy, at the mercy, and you're in the corner, braced like a sprinter. And as the person runs up, you're gonna you're gonna pounce off and you're gonna dive across <laughs> the goal completely. And he's got to judge where to where would you where would you position that kick? I think that would be a difficult thing to play against. I, I think you're right. I think that would be very unsafe. You wouldn't be, want to be the first kicker up against that technique, would you? Like by the fifth one, you'd be like, okay, I've got a measure of this. I think the instinct is yeah. to go as far away as possible from the goalkeeper. Yeah. But also, if he's started with any kind of momentum going forward, there's absolutely no way he can stop, turn around and respond if you've gone behind him. But also, yeah. I, ge- I guess it'd have to be a sense that once a kicker starts his run-up, he can't do one of those sort of like weird Jorginho staggered ones. There's a sort of like, once, <laughs> once, once the flag, you know, like a drag race, once someone drops yeah, the flag, yeah, 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 like yeah. You both, you're both going until the ball has been kicked. But you know, there is kind of a precedent, isn't there? Because like Bruce Grobola did the spaghetti legs in the European Cup final like that. That at the time was seen as really innovative and, and really consequential in terms of, uh, was it Roma they played? Like in terms of all those, pe- yeah, those penalties was, that were yeah. missed. So, but mate, there's something in this. There is something in this. I think if you can innovate on on the big stage, imagine the Euro final against Italy. Jordan Pickford is pegging it between the posts. You're going to be completely discombobulated as the penalty taker. Right? <laughs> so imagine this is we've gone back in time. We're at the Euros. It's the finals. It's a penalty shootout. We're there in the fan park watching this. <laughs> And Jordan Pickford starts doing that. Like, what's going through your mind? I would honestly think he'd had such a good tournament. I was like, this is brilliant. Normal technique. (laughs) The problem with it is, if you do that as a goalkeeper, the goalkeeper can't be the villain, except at the 1990 World Cup semi final. But the goalkeeper can't be the villain. So, if the goalkeeper was to do that, I feel like if it failed. They'd get a lot of flack. But imagine <laughs> if he saves the first one. <laughs> imagine um, what, the just w- the watching the heads go of the Italians in the semicircle. Because also, you could you could do it from different posts. You wouldn't necessarily need to go left to right every time. And also, if you if you're doing it for the first two, and on the third one you're static, you'll be like, "What is this? What's going on now?" What about if you held onto the crossbar and kind of? <laughs> Swung yourself left and right, <laughs> like monkeys yeah. the crossbar, like monkey bars. <laughs> Did you need to be on the line physically, or could Jordan Pickford, if if he wanted, be stood on top of the crossbar, <laughs> <laughs> which is he's on the line directly. He's on the line. Yeah, he's on the line. And then his aim is to jump down the front. So the momentum of his fall. I'm going to say that's probably the least effective of all the suggestions. <laughs> but what if he's like, you know, like how runners start for that 100 metres? They get, they get down on like, they kneel down in the blocks. He's do, he, but he's doing that, but he's in the very back corner of the net. <laughs> So you're like, he's going to come charging out, but it's on what direction? Like, do you go for the far post? That appears like he's getting ready to sprint there. So like... Yeah. Yeah, which direction he's charging at. Yeah. Hey, it could work. It could work. Um, okay, well, I should just end this correspondence with a very simple thing. Do you want to see 
Do you remember when England toured Australia in 1991? I don't know if you remember this. Uh, they did some friendlies in 1991. Do you want to see a picture, a publicity picture from it? Do you like that? Oh, wow. What can you see there? So that is um, Stuart Pearce sporting an incredible haircut. I had that haircut once as a kid, but it's because my mum couldn't afford it to take us to the hairdresser, so she just put a bowl on my head and just cut around yeah. the edges of the bowl. <laughs> well, Stuart Pearce has the haircut of, you're right, of a of a school child, but no one's willing to say that to him. Yeah. Uh, and he is stood next to uh, Des Walker in what I assume are sort of official England tracks. They look very official, do they? They, they, they don't. They look like the sort of... They um, look like... Littlewoods catalog, yeah, yeah, shell yeah. suit tracksuits, and uh, Stuart Pierce. The, the key detail is Stuart Pierce is uh, cradling a, a kangaroo like a baby. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't even spot the kangaroo; it blended into the tracksuit top. What, what did you think the picture was? Just I him didn't know, and the, I didn't... you didn't spot the kangaroo. <laughs> I just thought I was you talking about his hair. The, the kangaroo blends seamlessly into the tracksuit top. I'm not sure it does. No, don't, I'd don't say be, if someone said, what's that picture of? I would definitely see the kangaroo. Well, do you know where... Have you ever seen that... Um, sometimes they paint warships with this triangular like pattern that's not dissimilar to the one on this tracksuit because apparently it's it's really difficult to pick up. Yeah, yeah. it's a bit like and the I Manchester never United it would work. third kit. Yeah. yeah, and I never thought, well, that doesn't work. Here is the evidence. I didn't see a kangaroo amongst this pattern. Oh, well, there we go. There we go. We'll get that on our Instagram. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us... This is how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin. And sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Now, a legend of 90s football, if you do like the 90s, uh, then uh, Chris Skull, you have a book out about 90s football called what? Can we not knock it? It's all in there. Lots of different games from the 90s that were looked at. Czech Republic once played Bamber Bridge in a Euro 96 warm-up. Read all about it. You can get a copy at canwenotknockit.com. And if you like 90s culture, and frankly, why wouldn't you? Surely the dream Christmas present is that compacted into one present or wrapped separately uh, with uh, my book, uh, Watching Neighbours Twice a Day, which is a journey through the 90s told through the TV shows we watched. Go and buy both of them. Here is a man who bestrode 90s television. Room 101, they think it's all over. Football nightmares. The Outsiders, a documentary about following Iran at France 98. And of course, throughout it, was a huge fan of Stoke City with a great story about being slammed by Stanley Matthews. This was a lovely chat with the brilliant Nick Hancock. Today's guest is very much one of our dream guests. In the 90s, he combined hosting the iconic comedy panel show They Think It's All Over with dominating the VHS charts with his Football Nightmare series. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, TV titan and Stoke City fan, Nick Hancock. How are you, Nick? Very good, thank you very much. Just just the ticket, yeah. Um, Stoke not doing too badly, so that always helps. Um, yeah, yeah, pretty positive. Are you emotionally involved? How emotionally involved do you get in Stoke City? Yeah, l- less than I used to. I mean, yeah. uh, <laughs> I- I'll be honest. Since I've had children, I'm, I, uh, not, I, not that I love my children more than I love Stoke. That's clearly not the case. <laughs> it's, it's confused things a little bit. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I still, I get, I get, I do get, I do get involved, but n- not in the same way that you know when you go to every single game and you live and breathe it, and you know, uh, or, or you do the moment one game. 
finishes, pardon me, he's, he's planned the next one. And so, yeah. so yeah, not, not, not that bad, but, you know, it still upsets me when they do badly, which is well, all the time. In the, so in the 90s was the kind of glut of the suddenly, of the football fan, of the comedian or celebrity that be associated clearly with a club and you were Stoke. And yeah. it felt like you were one of the ones that was, that was the most kind of passionate about your club. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there are different sorts of ways that that worked, aren't there? Because first and foremost, you know, before, uh, before 1990 and all, all that stuff, um, uh, no, virtually nobody was willing to be associated with it. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> so, you know, I, I was, I was uh, not a lone voice, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, the, yeah, there are a lot of dilettantes out there. And <laughs> I, I always say, that if you meet somebody and they say this is what club, you know within two or three minutes if they support the club to the same level that you support yeah. the club. Yeah. yeah it's, you can tell yeah, really yeah. easily. Yeah. <laughs> Being Stoke's number one fan in the 90s, I'd say, what uh, what benefit did you see of that? Oh, God, none. <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, uh, just because I, I used to just go with my mates the same the same way I, I, I always had. Um, and, of course, in the 90s, you know, the... the the whole sort of executive box type thing, it only just kind of started. And, and it would have, being a Stoke fan, it would have seemed incredibly poncy uh, to have done it. Um, so not really. In fact, the only, the only, the only time I got to, to, to touch the hem of the coats of the, of the uh, influential people was when we won the Autoglass in 1992. And they... Um, uh, I just like to say we won it again in 1999. You know what I mean? It was our decade. Um, so yeah, they asked me. They asked me to do a speech at the dinner afterwards. Oh wow, now, Josh! I don't know whether you've ever ever done a speech for professional sports. No, I wouldn't want to. Don't do it. Don't do it. I, I, you know, the comedian Bob Mills was asked to do cabaret for the England squad. Oh, um, was it? Yeah, before a game, and and died so badly he pretended to faint. He <laughs> <laughs> did, and he was sort of carried out. <laughs> so, of course, similarly, I can tell that story because this is what happened to me. So, I'm, st I'm staying, starting with the same sort of jokes I'd do if it was like my local football club, you know, taking the mickey out of them, saying, you know, that they're yeah. slow or they're this or they're that or they're the other. And of course, all professional footballers think that it's just bad luck that they're not you know, the Ballon d'Or winner. Yeah. That there's no acceptance that possibly there's there's a grey area between, you know, you know it's just a sort of a, a, an order. Anyway, so clearly all these jokes went down very, very badly. And um, and then I just had a little, little hand on my shoulder, little hand on my shoulder the bloke sitting next to me. And he said, I think you better sit down, son. And you, oh, oh, oh. Oh, wait. And the bloke sitting next to me was Sir Stanley Matthews. Oh, wow. Oh, <laughs> so, no. Uh, you know, very polite <laughs> booing off, but by a peer of the realm. <laughs> oh, wow. So that and was, did that oh. ruin your day? You'd won the autograph. Did it ruin my day? <laughs> <laughs> did it ruin... I think about it constantly. <laughs> I, I ended up... First of, all, first of all, what happened is I did sit down and it sort of ended. Yeah. And, and then players came one by one to threaten me for the things oh, I'd said wow. to them, including, including the quite frightening Mick Kennedy, who was uh, <laughs> a member of that sort of 
um, incredible uh, Portsmouth side with, with Noel Blake and all those sort of oh, people. Yeah. And he was famous in hard, you know, and lots and lots and oh. lots of threats and, 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 and anger. And I, you know, I ended up writing a letter to the club, to the <gasps> players and saying, I, just, I can't, uh, you know, I can't oh, do, you know. Oh. Yeah. So can you not think about, maybe the, the ruin the day was the wrong phrase. Maybe I should put it this way. Can you not think about the 1992 Autoglass win with anything other than regret. No, it's like it's like going to see the total eclipse of the sun and looking straight at it. All I can remember <laughs> is that blinding sense of failure and embarrassment and, and regret. And, no, that's all I see. That's all oh, I see. Oh, mate. Yeah. You know, I, I smoked for quite a long time because they said that, you know, each cigarette takes a minute off your life. And I was hoping that I could choose the minutes that I could take <laughs> off my life and I could go back to 1992 and take those minutes out of my life. So, yeah, that was, that was the only privilege I had, the privilege to ruin my sense oh, of self-esteem. Yeah. <laughs> you, you kind of um, alluded to the fact that in the 80s that the being a football fan was very frowned upon in the 90s. It suddenly became the ultimate accessory kind of thing. And I suppose, do you know, we, we hadn't written this down, but this just popped into my head. Defining thing that did that, maybe, is Italia 90. And you, of course, were in one of the defining texts of Italia 90, which was An Evening with Gary Lineker. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in, uh, in Evening with Gary Lineker was, was a play about watching the semi-final of the World Cup in a mm. hotel in Mallorca. Uh, and Caroline Quentin was in it, and I was in it. Chris England was in it, and it was written by Arthur Smith and 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 Chris England. And it wasn't a great leap to write this because uh, I watched the semi-final of the 1990 World Cup in a hotel in Mallorca with Caroline Quentin, <laughs> Arthur Smith, Chris England, <laughs> and strangely enough, Bob Mills. So there oh you wow! <laughs> Yeah, uh, and, and indeed, Graham Souness, who was not in the same room, but was at the same hotel. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's like a seminal uh, Sex Pistols gig, isn't it? Kind <laughs> <laughs> of, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, 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 but, the, but the, of course, what then happened was we did the play in the West End, and it was great. It was a lovely thing to do, because it was just your mates, and you, as the play gets written, you do it in a tiny hall somewhere, and it ends up in the West End, and it's written by your friends, and I get to play a Stoke fan. So it was, it was absolutely wonderful. And then before they went to um, Sweden, because, of course, it was the one where Lineker got taken off, yeah, before they went there, the whole squad um, came to watch it, so in the West End. So oh, that, wow. that, that was quite nice. But Stuart Pearce wasn't there. And <laughs> Chris, who wrote it, told me a great story about when it went on tour and they had a new cast, they did it in... Um, they did it in Nottingham. Stuart Pearce came along to watch it. And at the end, there's a dream sequence where the penalties are being taken. And of course, they're going, and who's this? Who's it? It's Pierce. It's Pierce stepping up to the ball. And of course, everybody in the theatre just turns around and looks <laughs> at Stuart Pierce. And, and, and in the play, Pierce scores. And he go, we go, and it's there, Pierce has scored. And Stuart Pierce stood up and went, yes, yes, <laughs> in the theatre. Which is very pleasing. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> we normally start by saying, have you met a 90s football? But obviously with you, um, well, you've already, well, Stanley Matthews is not a 90s fo football yeah. in his 90s, maybe. But um, <laughs> was there a kind of crossover between the comedy and the football world at that time? No, not not really, no. I mean, of course, it was easier to meet players then anyway, 
because, mm. you know, they might do something other than sit at home playing, you know, Call of Duty. Um, yeah. So, you know, there's half a chance you might see them somewhere. Um, the ones that I met mostly were once they think it's all over, it started because yeah. they would come on. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to persuade professional sportsmen, any professional sportsmen, but especially footballers, to come on a show like that because they, they live in a dressing room mentality, which means they're used to having a mickey taken out of them, but they also don't ever want to put their head above the parapet because, yeah, yeah. because yeah. then you're the, you know, you're the one that gets, oh, you did that on that program, you should so. But we did, we did, we had some, we had some great people, and and um, you know, and there were there were some, there were very some very funny people around. So yeah, I mean, that was really lucky. It was just, uh, you know, as a, as a sports fan, what's not to like? You know, you yeah. know, to meet all of your heroes and then be really rude to them. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> yeah. well, I was thinking about that because your stick was to be quite acerbic, a lot of Mickey taking. But as you say, you know, you're relying on them getting the joke. Did it? Did it always come off, or did anyone come up to you afterwards? Uh, what do you mean? As in, like Mick Kennedy? Um, yeah. um, <laughs> Will Carling offered me out once. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, well, it was more of a. You don't want to be saying that again, or you might find that something right, bad yeah. will happen to you, type thing, <laughs> oh, which, wow. is, which is very <laughs> funny. Uh, but you know, but you know, yeah, but mostly they do get the the, the, the joke. They live in this incredible, you know, uh, predominantly male world where they get very, very bored, and they just take the Mickey out of each other, you know, and mm. you know, you know, dead pigs in each other's lockers and stuff like that. So. If we go beyond the practical joke, yeah, you know, they're, they're kind of fine with it. And that was a great thing about having Lineker and Gow was, you know, if you're taking the piss out of probably the most famous footballer in the country at the time and probably the finest cricketer in the country at the time, then they're not really in position to, to complain if you're taking the mickey out of them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, if somebody yeah. at the very top yeah. could say, no, this is fine, that, it, it kind of helps. Because I, I remember at the time, like, you you were really in awe, not so much like on screen, but I remember in interviews and stuff, you, you David Gow was like your favourite Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Because you're yeah. a huge cricket fan as well, aren't you? Yeah, I am, yeah, yeah. And so how quickly does that, does David Gower stop being the person that I adored who was on the cricket pitch and become a kind of work colleague almost? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, um, or is he always David well, I Gower? Th I think almost immediately, to tell you the honest truth. Yeah. Because... Because the good thing about that, and I'll get into this too, which is not something I've really thought about, but but in, in a sense, they're coming into your world. Yeah. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. you're making them feel comfortable about what's going on. Uh, not just the world of comedy, but the world of television to a large extent, the world, world of a panel show. So it's not like me going and having a net with him, you know what I mean? <laughs> or, or, or playing five-a-side with Gary. It's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> would watch it though i would watch that <laughs> and i would do it <laughs> Let, let's talk about stoke so yeah um because I, th I think actually that is one of the things is because you were so obviously a bona fide proper sports fan i think that buys you a lot more as well what were your earliest memories you were born in 1962 so your earliest memories of sporting stoke must be early 70s would they be uh yeah very late 60s early 70s 69 70 was the first season i went to a game and i was thinking about this the other day actually i hadn't really probably seen that much football there wasn't very much football on television 
Mm. You know, it wasn't yeah. like you could you you could have that sort of um, be blooded in your own home. That you could warm up for going to a game by watching lots of football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It worked like that. Generally, your first experience was just rocking up. Um, wow. And you know, I just remember my dad. I had my mate Phil around, and my dad said, "What do you boys want to do today? Um, um, Stoker at home, or we could go conquer collecting at Shavington Gardens." <laughs> so, do <you> remember <laughs> the two two options and. Uh, and it's cost me a lot of money, but I chose to go to Stoke. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I've never collected a conquer since. But you could, there's another, there's a parallel world where you're one of the foremost conquer collectors in. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Doing a conquer podcast history. right now. Yeah. So the late six is pretty good for Stoke. Did, we, did you see Gordon Banks play? He was signed oh, yeah, yeah, around yeah. that time. Yeah, yeah. Now Gordon, Gordon signed in uh, 66, 67. And um, so, yeah, I saw a lot of Gordon Banks. Um, and obviously, uh, and in fact, I went to his last ever game, which clearly I didn't know was going to be his last ever game because uh, he had a car crash uh, the next day. Oh, God, and it was yeah. away at Liverpool, which was not something I would normally probably have done at that age because I'd only been about 10, 11, 12 maybe. Um, and my dad said, come on, we'll go, we'll go to Anfield to, to watch Stoke. And uh, yeah, and tragically, next day he had his, had his accident. So yeah, I got to see Gordon Banks, you know, and Jimmy Greenoff and, um, and Dennis Smith and Alan Hudson. And, and they, they, those were all the players that were, that were, were um, around at that time. Was like the early days supporting Stoke. Was it very much like everyone would talk about Stanley Matthews? He played on until he was 50, but I think you would have just missed the tail end of his leg. Yeah, he played, well, he played until he was, he was 51 um, in 1965. And, and of course, he may well have played on another five years, but substitutes <laughs> substitutes hadn't been brought in at that stage. Oh, right. So it was pity he had to play 90 minutes, you know? <laughs> so, um, so, you know, you can imagine, you say, well, we'll give Stan another couple of years. He can come on. He can come on for 20 minutes at the end, you know? Yeah. Because, because actually the interesting thing about, well, I think is interesting thing about that was when Stan retired, we immediately brought Gordon back. So the reason was we'd made so much money out of playing friendlies because Stan played for us. You know, we were forever being asked to go to Real Madrid and Barcelona, and, and so and then we got Gordon Banks, and, and again we were we were welcome in houses we should really oh. have been welcome in. So it's like when the kind of you know you see those news stories now about a club who signed a Chinese player in the hope yeah. that it'll kind of break the Far East for them. Yes, well, yeah, but I suppose kind of. You know, in Stanwood's from Stoke, so there was more of a, a logic. To it. I think this this was discovered rather than being the plan. Yes, but, yeah. yeah, but it, it worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the yeah. match going atmosphere like? What was the Victoria Ground like when you first? Oh, right, home? Victoria Ground. We had a great big um, open end, um, which which you had home fans and away fans in. Um, you know, until about ten minutes after kickoff, um, <laughs> and then there's a big booth in there. Um, uh, the, the building stand, which was the, the, the new stand, which was built in, I don't know, 1950 something. And then the old stand, which is the Butler Street stand, which is where I first went. I used to go with my granddad a lot. And it was like wooden flooring and you, you'd stamp your little feet, pardon me, you'd stamp your little feet to get the, the atmosphere going. So looking back on it, it was a very much, you know, uh, men with pipes um, all going along with this, sort of, but almost like a train, a plane, a plume of smoke uh, coming yeah. behind them, you know, and just little lads running around in between their legs and oh, and, 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 and rickets, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and could you see, like, so I'm not, like, as a small kid there, is it, were you in seats or were you? 
Well, in the in the, in the Butler Street Sandringham seats, but when you used to go behind there, you know, your you, you, your granddad or your dad would take a box for you to stand on. Oh wow! Yeah, like yeah, carrying that was, a box. That was quite a common thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like when I started going to Argyle in the early nineties, it was still like terracing and you couldn't see and stuff. But it does feel like Stoke City in the early seventies is so divorced from your experience now of going to the Britannia. It must be. It must feel like two different clubs. Well, it does, but of course, I mean, you age as well, don't you? And, it, and it's yeah, incremental, yeah. you know. I mean, the Premier League yeah. was a big step, but it's kind of been incremental. I mean, I remember going to um, to uh, to Plymouth many, many times and uh, having a hairy walk across Home Park, uh, yeah. trying to get back to the station and all those sorts of things. Uh, and indeed, I, I seem to remember playing there in the in the semi final of the Watney Cup in 1974. So, what was the Watney Cup then? Uh, the Watney Cup. <laughs> the Watney Cup was for the highest scorers in each division. So, the top scorers of each division would play each other? Yeah, in a kind of. And, and I seem to remember that Scotland might have been involved, but that might have been a different thing. Um, so, I think it was Hull, Plymouth, us, and whoever it was. Um, yeah. we won so, it. so, there's another trophy we've won. Yeah, you won. So you won the last ever Watney Cup. Do you know what happened to the trophy after you'd won it? Uh, it's a no. great, you, it's a great you, story. Yes. Do you know? So, no, please. Yeah. Derby, Derby were the first. It's only, there's only four Watney Cups. Derby won the first, you won the last. But it was in Derby's trophy cabinet and a Stoke fan saw it in Derby's trophy cabinet and said, hang on, we were the last winners. We should have it in our trophy cabinet. So now Derby and Stoke City share the trophy. They have it, yeah. They should. They've got it on a timeshare, essentially. So it could be right now. I don't know who's got it. But in 2019, it was in your trophy cabinet. It's whereabouts now is unknown. But so, 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 so it's, it's, it's every other year, is it? I, I assume so. Yeah. So in a, in a sense, we win the Watney Cup every <laughs> other year. We should have an open top bus coming from Derby. It's coming home, lads. Here we go. <laughs> it wasn't your only trophy. Seventy-two. You won the League Cup. Were you there? Of course, I was. I was there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. March fourth, nineteen seventy-two. Remember it very, very, very well. Stranger things you remember because again, I, I was nine. Um, and what, what the weird thing is, the one I remember going on the tube. I'd never been on the tube before. I'd never been to London before, in fact. Um, uh, but for some annoying reason, my biggest memory is getting on the tube, going back, and somebody going, Leeds have won 7 0. And that's my, <laughs> that's my biting memory. <laughs> Somehow, I don't know how it manages to be. Uh, yeah, it was a very famous game against Southampton, I think it was, when they, they were all doing keepy-uppies and flicking the ball around. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've yeah, seen, yeah, 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 I've seen footage of that, yeah. It was that day, March the 4th, 1972. In the semi-final, uh, you're a West... Chris is a West Ham fan. Yeah. You played West Ham four times, apparently, yeah. in the semi-final. Yeah, yeah. We played, I think that season, I think I might say, we played something like 70 games. Wow. Something ridiculous. Because we had loads of replays. in Because we got to the FA Cup semi-finals as well and had a yeah. replay in that. And we had a replay in the sixth round and we had a replay in the fifth round. We played Manchester United three times. So it was just game after game after game. Maybe the 70 games was Gordon Banks because he played for England as well. But yeah, it just went on. And I used to love replays. I, I, I rather miss them. But I can see, I mean, I can see why. And, and you know, and it probably seems a bit pointless to people now. But yeah, it was just so many games. It was, it was incredible. Yeah. Um, you were going home and away and stuff. So were you going to see the, all of these replays and stuff at that point? Well, that, that was a little bit early for me. You know, oh, these, okay, are, yeah. these are school nights, aren't they? So, yeah, I mean, I went, I, went to, I went to Goodison for the FA Cup semi-final replay. 
Uh, I went to one or two of them. You know, if they, if they were really big games and um, um, and my dad desperately wanted to go, because <laughs> uh, obviously that's a great thing about the father son thing is we can we both. Uh, use each other as an excuse, obviously, um, for, for, for tickets all the time. In fact, my son, you know, my son did exactly that to me this year. He, um, because of the, all the COVID stuff, he hasn't been going to, to university, but he's been working from home. So he's got he's saving up loads of money from his, you know, his from his his grant for his accommodation. So he says to me, Joe, we should be going to the Euro final, shouldn't we? And I said, Oh yeah, yeah, but it's just silly, it's silly money, silly money. And he comes down, he goes. Right, I bought just two tickets because I think <laughs> I think you deserve to go, Dad. You know, you, you you've been to all of these games, all of these disappointments. You deserve this, so I bought two tickets. So of course I want to be furious with him, spending the money, but of course it is kind of nice. And also he's done the he's done the perfect thing. It's like when blokes used to go to sea. You know, young kids used to go to sea and they get a tattoo, but they get mum. Because then mum would be cross about the tattoo, but secretly quite pleased about the fact it said mum on it. And, and it was the same thing with these tickets. Back to the 70s. So your 70s pomp kind of ends. And this is one of my favourite facts about 70s football. It was like, your, your great team of the 70s essentially ends because of a storm in January 76. Yes. Right? The roof blows off your stand. The roof blows off the stand and we have to sell Jimmy Green off to Manchester United. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well... Uh, yes, it was. It, so it just happened to another club as well, I think. But uh, yeah, very depressing. And then of course, the, the finances were so, you know, hand to mouth in those days. The idea of insurance um, would probably be anathema to them. Uh, I don't know, but it's the same when you're a young kid. You just think, oh, that'll probably happen again in 10 years because I've been watching them for 10 years and now the roof. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.